This is going to be another one of those days. A day where you wake up, you check the stock market, you see everything red across the board. The heat map shows almost everything in the red. And this is how this year has been. This has been a tough year. The S&P 500 is down 14% year to date. And the QQQ is down 22% year to date. This is still in a bear market. Every one of our portfolios has been hit this year, unless you are doing a shorting strategy. And I think that this is okay, especially if you're starting off investing. This is actually the type of market that you want to buy companies in. Now, in this video, I'm going to be going over three different dividend paying companies already in my portfolio that I've been adding more to. And I'm going to go over these three companies and outline why I've been buying them. Now, we also have some other news to get to today. Jay Powell, the Fed chair, just gave a 10-minute speech where he reiterated a lot of the things he's been saying. And he basically said that he's going to remain hawkish. He's going to keep raising interest rates. That's no surprise. But some other things he did say were a little bit more surprising. So we'll go over the speech and I'll play one part of it that I think is the most important part. He warns about how inflation can become a long-term problem. Now, we also have some different news. Amazon is spending a ridiculous amount on the Lord of the Rings series. The total sum that they're spending on this is $715 million. $715 million is the estimate so far, and this likely will cost over a billion dollars total. And in this Wall Street Journal article, they go over the reason, the motivation for Amazon spending this much money on one television series. So we'll go over the massive bet Amazon's making with The Lord of the Rings and the likelihood of it being successful. And then you know the drill. We have more advice from TikTok, and this time it's from a LinkedIn employee. Now, I own a sizable portion of Microsoft stock, which is the owner of LinkedIn. So I want to check in and see how productive and how good the employees are at this company. Now, luckily for us, she walks us through a day as a LinkedIn employee. So we have a lot to get to in this episode, a lot to go over. Before we jump in, just a side note, if you haven't tried out the Patreon for this YouTube channel, it gives you access to a lot more things than most Patreon memberships. Of course, you get a lot of exclusive content. We literally have over 70 hours of exclusive content, but you also gain access to Qualtrum, which is a suite of investment software. Qualtrum Insights is one of the most popular tools here that thousands of Patreon members use every single day. It gives you all the fundamentals, the company profile, recent news about the company, all at a glance. Qualtrum also includes a lot of other things like the dip finder, which shows you how your stocks are trading. You can have multiple watch lists on it and you get a portfolio tracking part that shows you your upcoming dividends, your yearly growth, your portfolio allocation, all of that good stuff. So if you haven't already, go ahead and try out the Patreon. There's a link in the pinned comment below. It comes with a free trial. There's literally no risk to it. Now, before we jump into my three companies, the three dividend stocks that I'm buying, I wanna go ahead and just share the top news of the day. The biggest news of the day is that Jerome Powell spoke for 10 minutes. Now, this was talked up to be this big, important news. We have the Fed chair, the guy that is synonymous with transitory inflation, controlling inflation. Jerome Powell is the guy behind the interest rates going up. And what he did in this meeting was basically reiterate the exact same things he's been saying all along. He said that they're going to keep raising interest rates until inflation is under 2%. And so this is nothing new. We learned nothing from this so far. But there was some nuances and a little bit of change to what he said today. He focused more on potential downside. While Jay Powell has historically been very optimistic about having a soft landing, meaning he's able to control inflation without destroying the economy, now he's actually talking about pain. He says that there are some unfortunate costs for reducing inflation and that it may inflict some pain for households and businesses. 
And he also says that failure to restore price stability would mean even greater pain. So that part's a little bit of a divergence of what he said before. Now he keeps talking repeatedly about pain that businesses and households are gonna feel. He goes on to say, we are taking forceful and rapid steps to moderate demand so that it comes into better alignment with supply and to keep inflation expectations anchored. The expectations is a big part of what he focused on. In this little speech, Jay Powell went over the psychology of inflation. And this part right here, I think really highlights what he's primarily concerned about. The psychology of inflation leading to greater inflation. The second lesson is that the public's expectations about future inflation can play an important role in setting the path of inflation over time. If the public expects that inflation will remain low and stable over time, then absent major shocks, it likely will. Unfortunately, the same is true of expectations of high and volatile inflation. During the 1970s, as inflation climbed, the anticipation of high inflation became entrenched in the economic decision-making of businesses and households. The more inflation rose, the more people came to expect it to remain high, and they built that belief into wage and price decisions. See, that's part of the battle here. Inflation is a psychological phenomenon to some extent. If everyone agrees that we're going to have inflation, then just that mutual agreement will be a cause for inflation. And I think Jay Powell is very concerned about that becoming a reality. If we start to accept that we're going to have inflation, it's gonna be very difficult to turn this around. When inflation is persistently high, households and businesses must pay close attention and incorporate inflation into their economic decisions. When inflation is low and stable, they are freer to focus their attention elsewhere. This vicious feedback loop of predicting inflation and that in and of itself causing inflation, I think is something that we should be concerned about. Inflation needs to come down quickly, otherwise it may become ingrained in society. So in reality, is Jerome Powell doing anything differently because of this? No, I don't think so. I think he's going to be doing the same thing that he's always done, which is raise interest rates by 0.75%. Another 75 basis point is my prediction. I don't think he's going to let off the gas until inflation goes down. And I definitely don't think that Jerome Powell cares at all about the stock market. Big red days like this and the stock market going down actually help him accomplish his goal. It makes people feel less wealthy. And when they feel less wealthy, they're less likely to spend money. So it's more difficult to invest right now with Jerome Powell working against us. Now, having said that, in my situation, I have over 20 years of investment horizon. So it doesn't matter too much to me if we recover in 2022 or 2023. I have a waiting game. I can own these stocks for a long time and just let them pay me dividends until their price eventually recovers. Now, what I want to do is go over three companies. That- this episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I've been buying all week and that I'm still buying today. These are three dividend-paying companies that I think are all of decent value right now. Now, I have three restaurant companies. Two of them are quick service restaurants, which is Starbucks and Domino's. And then Texas Roadhouse is a full sit-down restaurant. So they have different business models. And for the most part, investors seem to like the quick service restaurants. These ones where they get you your food fast and they can serve customers all day long, morning until night. 
but I actually prefer Texas Roadhouse over both Starbucks and Domino's. When I look at the business model of these three companies, there's a lot of things that I think investors miss with Texas Roadhouse. Let's go ahead and check out Texas Roadhouse, and I want to just go over a couple things I think are important. We can all look at the surface level information. We can look at the dividend yield. It has a 2% dividend yield. It has a growing dividend. This is all things that we like to see, right? Every dividend investor likes to see that. And Texas Roadhouse certainly checks those boxes. The company has more to it, though. The first thing is evaluation. It trades at a 24.4 PE ratio. So it's been hovering right around a 25. Some investors will say that this is a little bit pricey for a restaurant. But let's put this in context. When we look at it on a free cash flow basis, the valuation looks quite a bit better. It trades at a 4% free cash flow yield. That is better than most companies in the market right now with the quality of Texas Roadhouse. The top line revenue growth has been incredibly consistent, growing in any market environment since 2001. The only time they had trouble was during COVID, which I give them a pass on. The free cash flow of this company has also continually improved over time. At one point from 2001 to 2008, it was unpredictable and mostly negative. Then they flipped it to the positive by opening up more restaurants, reaching scale effects, and now the free cash flow is starting to march upwards year after year. Again, 2020 being the only outlier, which I give them a pass for because they had to shut down their restaurants for half a year. In terms of cyclicality, there's not much with Texas Roadhouse. Cyclicality usually means the company goes through booms and busts. It has times where it earns a lot of money and times where it doesn't. And Texas Roadhouse is just the opposite. They have one of the most consistently growing earnings per share year over year that I've ever seen for a company. I've compared this against numerous consumer staples and Texas Roadhouse is simply more predictable. Again, the only outlier year is 2020, which I simply don't think should be factored in. Over the past 10 years, Texas Roadhouse has grown its earnings per share at three times the speed of the average company in the S&P 500. So this is a fast growing company. Another reason that I like Texas Roadhouse is especially when comparing it to other restaurant and food companies, is because of the balance sheet. Here we're looking at three different categories. We have cash, debt, which is kind of the bad debt, and then we have what's called capital leases. Capital leases are when a company rents out a location with a bigger agreement than a normal rental lease. Sometimes it has some equity ownership in it, but they put it under a bucket called capital leases. In my opinion, it's just not as bad of debt as just debt outstanding because capital leases is more so just to run your company. This type of debt, this salmon color here, that's bad debt. That's just outstanding debt that you owe to lenders. And in Texas Roadhouse's case, almost all of their debt is good debt, not bad debt. Almost all of its capital leases, they have very little bad debt, only $75 million. And at the same time, they have $335 million in cash. So they could pay out all of their outstanding debt in cash. And my assumption is they probably have already done that. I think they're going to wipe away their debt this quarter. That's my prediction. All they'll be left with is these capital leases, which aren't a problem for Texas Roadhouse. As long as their locations are making money, they'll be able to pay the rent. When I compare this to other great restaurant companies like Starbucks, you can see the difference here. Starbucks has the majority of their debt as bad debt, $12.37 billion. They don't have enough cash to cover it. And then on top of that, they have even more capital leases for all their retail locations. So they're not in as good of a balance sheet position as Texas Roadhouse. We can look at Domino's as well. This is another situation where the huge majority of their debt 
debt is bad debt. $4.9 billion of long-term debt, only $236 million of capital leases, and they just have a tiny amount of cash, $114 million. So they don't have anywhere near the same balance sheet situation as Texas Roadhouse. So I really like the metrics so far. This company has everything across the board that I'm looking for. Then they have the growing dividend on top of that. We also have some other financial ratios we can look at. The returns on capital employed have been really good for the past 10 years, getting up to almost 20%. And they're also starting to do share buybacks, which is another thing I like to see. So overall, I really like the profitability ratios, the capital allocation, the balance sheet, the earnings growth. I like the fundamentals of this company. And one of the things I like the most is how predictable it is. They run a business that makes money in basically two different ways. One of them is by growing same-store sales. Comparable restaurant sales increased 7.6% last quarter year-over-year. That's very consistent. Almost every year, on schedule, they increase their same-store sales by 7.6%. Part of that is price hikes. They have marginal 2 or 3% price hikes. The other part is increased traffic and efficiency. Between the two, they increase their same-store sales by 7 to 8%. The other way that they grow is by predictably opening up a handful of new stores every single year. They went from 537 Texas Roadhouse locations in 2019 to their last report having 603. So they open up a couple of them every single quarter on schedule. And they're doing the same thing with their other brands, Bubba 33 and Jaggers. This slow and gradual opening up of new locations without using debt makes it so that they're expanding their business without any risk or any leverage. And these are the two basic ways they make money. Opening up locations, raising same-store sales on existing locations. Between the two, you get market-beating returns. So that's why I've been adding more and more to this position, growing it to a $35,000 position. I am really invested in this company now. It's a major part of my portfolio. And there is always a chance it could go wrong. Maybe I, I get this wrong and they get disrupted somehow. Maybe they don't execute well. There could be things that go wrong in every company. But overall, I feel very good about my research, enough to put a lot of money in it, because I do feel that Texas Roadhouse has a high chance of giving predictable market-beating returns. Now, the next dividend company I'm buying is in the consumer category. It's considered consumer discretionary, which is Nike. And I know this one may be surprising. Nike's usually not on the top of any dividend growth investors list, but I think this company probably should be. If we bring up Nike here, the big sticking point for most dividend investors is the low starting yield. It has a 1.1% starting dividend yield, which I admit is lower than most companies. But in addition to looking at the starting yield, we should look at the dividend growth over time. And Nike's has been substantial. Back in 2004, the dividend was two pennies, two pennies per quarter. Now it's up to 31 cents. So they've grown it multiples and multiples, doubling it over and over again. And the investors that held on to it over this duration of time have not only enjoyed substantial income growth, but also a lot of capital appreciation. Now, the downside of Nike is obviously the valuation. This company historically trades at a very high valuation in the mid-20s to the mid-30s range. And right now, it's at a 28 forward PE ratio. So it's more expensive based on its earnings than most companies in the market. It also has a free cash flow yield of 2.6% which is still kind of pricey, but not the worst in the market. And looking at this, this is even after a substantial decline in price. The company was just recently trading for 175 last year. 
Now it's back down to 111. So we have a company that's a bit more expensive than the average company, but in my opinion, for good reason. Nike is a perpetual growth machine. They've grown their revenue for over 25 years straight. The business has also improved over every decade in time. In the 1990s, Nike earned very inconsistent, sometimes negative free cash flow. Then in 2000 to 2010, the free cash flow started to go up and be far more consistent. It grew over double during that decade. Then in 2010 to 2020, the same thing is happening. We're actually seeing the growth in their free cash flow accelerate, not slow down. Now, in terms of their earnings, it's a little bit more volatile than I'd like. They have some years where it's gone down. The great financial crisis for tax reasons in 2018 and, of course, COVID in 2020. But overall, I do see a steady trend of earnings growth. Aside from a few outliers, year over year, they are growing their earnings and they're back on track in 2022. Another thing I love about this company is the balance sheet. Nike's been able to grow this much over the past 20 years without using leverage. They're doing this with cash and right now they have more cash than debt. Now, of course, we've looked at the growing dividend they're paying, but they're also doing share buybacks. In fact, in their most recent quarterly report, Nike says that they're approving an $18 billion share repurchase program over a four-year period. So they're going to be buying back over 10% of their market cap over the next four years. If you were to add that into their dividend yield, the share repurchases combined, that'd be well above 2%. And then the last thing I'll mention with Nike is they have very good profitability ratios. Their returns on capital employed are consistently around 25%. They have good gross margins that are very consistent and they have good operating margins, which again are very consistent. Overall, this is an incredibly solid business. There is a reason that investors rate it a little bit higher than the average company. It's likely to give you better returns than most companies in the market. So I've used this sell-off in Nike as an opportunity to increase my position around four times the size it previously was. If it continues to trade downward, I'll continue to buy more of it. Now, the last one that I want to mention is Church & Dwight. This is a dividend-paying company that I've been building up over the past couple of months, and I want to have it be a bigger holding. I want this one to be a sixteen dollars to $20,000 holding. Currently, it's at $8,800. I've been adding to this one in addition to Texas Roadhouse and Nike. Now, I realize Church & Dwight is an incredibly boring company. There's not much to it. They own Arm & Hammer as well as a bunch of other brands. But if you actually take a, a look under the hood of Church & Dwight, you'll see a much more interesting dynamic company than meets the eye. They actually function a little bit like Berkshire Hathaway. We always hear Warren Buffett talking about buying different companies that are durable and have moats. And this is exactly what Church & Dwight does. They buy brands and they expand their portfolio over time. They're always acquiring new companies and new brands. In total, Church & Dwight owns over 80 brands, but they have 14 of them that they call power brands. These are the most well-known ones that they each rake in a lot of money. And they're all in different aspects of life that we use on a daily basis. Now, the thing that they're doing here is they're trying to expand their power brands from 14 to 15 to 16 to 20, to 30, to 40. That's what this company wants to do. Their motto is a little bit like we have 14 power brands today, tomorrow we wanna have 20. That's the attitude of this company. It might seem like they have boring products, but this is a growth company. The PE ratio is a little bit higher for them at a 29, but they have very good free cash flow, a free cash flow yield of 4% because they convert all of their earnings into free cash flow and they usually even have more free cash flow left over. The growth company does what it does best. It keeps growing. It ebbs and flows from year to year, but the consistent part of this is growth. Their free cash flow growth is remarkably consistent. And like we've seen with the history of all of these companies, 
They go through a time period where they're making major investments starting out their business, and they go through a time where they earn inconsistent free cash flow. Some years negative, some positive. Then they establish their business, and it just takes off from there. This happened in 2000 for Church & Dwight. The free cash flow growth is incredible, surpassing almost every other company in the market. They grew their free cash flow over 11 times in the past 20 years. And the only thing really better than growth is growth with predictability. They're growing very predictably year over year. Their earnings growth shows the same thing. Now, in terms of their balance sheet, this is a levered company. Like a lot of consumer staples, they carry on a lot of debt. They use it as a tool for acquisitions. And historically, they've gotten this debt for very cheap. Right now, they have $2.1 billion in debt. They have a little bit less cash, $639 million, but they're still in a very good position. I estimate if they really wanted to, they could pay off all of their debt within a year or two. That's a very short timeline to be debt-free. And this company returns capital in two basic ways. They do the growing dividend and they do share buybacks. And in terms of pricing, this is one that I think is really difficult to get on a significant dip. There's simply not that many. I think right now, it's been basically flat for a year. That's around the best you're going to get with a company like this because it just doesn't dip as much as other companies. So those are the three companies I've been putting the most money into recently. Trojan White, Nike, and Texas Roadhouse. My prediction is each one of those will have market beating returns over the next five years, but we'll see what happens. Either way, good or bad, I'll follow along and show you the results. Now, moving on, we also have news that the Lord of the Rings series is going to cost an enormous amount of money, $715 million. Now, before we jump into that story, I have to give a quick shout out for the sponsor of this video, which is FTX US. You can download the app or sign up online on desktop using a link in the pinned comment below. If you do so, make sure to use the referrer code Carlson. The brokerage is very simple, easy to use. You can buy using fractional shares. They don't do payment for order flow. And it has a very slick interface. So far, everyone that I've heard give feedback after trying this out has had a good experience. So go ahead and try it out now and let me know what you think. Now, moving on, we get to some entertainment news here with Amazon. In full disclosure, I own a lot of Amazon stock in my growth portfolio. So I'm very bullish on this company. Not really because of the Lord of the Rings series per se, more so because of AWS and their marketplace, but Amazon is one of these companies that I think is is very interesting in the amount of long shots they're willing to take. They will throw around a billion dollars on basically anything if they think it can further their business. And this is just one example. Amazon turned Lord of the Rings into the most expensive show of all time. That's right, Amazon broke another record. They say between the first season budget and the rights for the agreement, the Lord of the Rings bill comes to roughly 715 million, and they break this down into annual Prime subscriptions. That's the equivalent of 5,143,885 annual Prime subscriptions, and it's 0.15% of Amazon's 2021 revenue. Now, the big question is, why is Amazon doing this? Amazon doesn't do anything without wanting to get an ROI on it. They want to get a return on every investment they make, and Lord of the Rings is not an exception. This isn't a pet project for Jeff Bezos. He wants to make money on this. He wants this to be accretive to the shareholder. And I think the Wall Street Journal accurately lays out the specific goal behind this series. They say for Amazon, it's a chance to give the Prime Video service what the show Transparent, which premiered in 2014, and even the more recent hits like The Terminal List, cannot provide. A franchise that spawns spin-offs, merchandise, cultural conversation the way the Game of Thrones did. But the Ring of Power is a costly gamble, coming just two weeks after the new Game of Thrones show premiered, 
to impressive numbers on HBO, and it's unclear whether appetite for Middle-earth stories can expand beyond the diehard fans. I think this is a pretty accurate portrayal of what Amazon's doing. They want to have a franchise. They want to have something that they can make that merchandise, they can monetize it in different ways, and I think more importantly, they want to have buzz. They want to have the cultural conversation be about a show that they own, not one that HBO owns, not one that Netflix owns. And in my opinion, I think this is a better strategy. I think that Netflix is missing out by approving all these shows that go in one ear and out the other and have no lasting impact. This show, The Rings of Power, has a chance to have a lasting impact. This has a chance to have a real cultural impact. So even with the strategy that Amazon's doing here, I think it's much better than most streaming services. I think that HBO has already figured this out. You have to have these groundbreaking franchise shows that create a lot of conversation. So I think Amazon is figuring that out, and this is their first swing at it. This is their first attempt to create that franchise, that cultural conversation. Will it be successful? Nobody can really say. But in my opinion, from what I've seen, the appetite for these groundbreaking, high-budget, epic drama series is not saturated. People still have an enormous appetite for this type of content. And I think that the viewership numbers on premiere September 2nd, I think they're going to be substantial. So we'll see what happens. In my opinion, I think the premiere of this show will likely be one of the biggest in streaming ever. I think it might actually beat out HBO's Game of Thrones prequel. Now, lastly, we can't forget it's Friday and I like to end the week with a little bit of instruction, a little bit of enlightenment of how we can improve our day-to-day, things that we can learn. And this one is from TikTok yet again, a great source for knowledge. This is the average day, or at least the day in the life of a 23-year-old living in Chicago, working in the tech industry. So she shows us her day at LinkedIn. And I also am interested to see this because I own a substantial holding of Microsoft stock, which they are the parent company over LinkedIn. So let's go ahead and see her day at LinkedIn. They started bright and early at 6 a.m. because I had a long day of events. I needed to get to the office early to get some stuff done. We're off to a good start. She started bright and early, 6 a.m. That actually sounds pretty productive. I usually get most of my work done sometime in the morning. The city was actually glowing this morning. I love getting up this early because the sunlight is just so beautiful at this time of day. And I got to the office, I picked up some cute little stickers that we had out, and I was definitely one of the first people in the office. It was like totally dark, at least on my floor. Okay, so maybe she's a little bit unique at LinkedIn. It looks like this office is entirely empty. There's not a single other person in the entire office. Again, I don't blame LinkedIn employees. This is too early. I don't like waking up at 6 a.m. I'll wake up at 6.30, maybe 7. 6 is just a bit too early to get started. People in the office, it was like totally dark, at least on my floor. And I started getting to work. I had to finalize some campaign edits before my meeting started for the day. I went. All right. So she says she has to finalize some campaign edits, but it immediately goes over to food. So did she just skip over the work part? Uh, we'll see. But this food looks really, really good. Downstairs. When breakfast finally opened, I got coffee and got back to work at 8 a.m. Okay, so she's back at the desk. I'm assuming there was some work done there, but this was about a five millisecond clip there. And got back to work at 8 a.m. And then we just got some new swag at work. So I got to pick up um, a shirt and a jacket as if we don't already have enough swag. She got some new swag and then we're back to food. This is feeling more like Instagram than TikTok. So far, there's been a lot of eating, a lot of food. All of this looks amazing though. And then I headed down to get some lunch. We had like a beautiful array of desserts and this vegan panna cotta it was delicious. And after lunch, we headed to my favorite event of the day. We went to Scratch Good. All right, so we just had lunch and now we're out of the office, not going back to work. We're out of the office 
What are, what are we doing now? ...with LinkedIn today, which I've been wanting to go to forever. You basically get to make a homemade face mask and just treat yourself a little... I've worked in the tech industry for over a decade. Before doing YouTube, it was my primary job to be a software developer. And I can say confidently that I've never had a day during work where I put on a mask. I put on a makeup mask in the middle of the workday. What is going on here? Are things a little bit different up in... And Silicon Valley and big tech working for companies like LinkedIn. What am I missing here? Self-care moment. We had about 30 people from the Chicago office go to this event. It was so much fun. We walked back to the office and grabbed our eucalyptus towels per usual, uh, picked up some kombucha. More drinks, eucalyptus towels. Finished a few things up before heading to... So far, my impression of LinkedIn is a place you go to eat all day. So overall, I don't want to be too hard on this girl. She seems like a nice person and she's probably just showing the good parts of the job, right? She probably works really hard and she's just highlighting all the food and the swag and the fun things that happen during the day. Because it would be boring to just film her working on a computer for three or four hours, right? That, that wouldn't be as fun to look at. That's my assumption here, is that this is just the highlights of the good parts of the job. Because if this is just an accurate portrayal of how an average day goes, I don't know how LinkedIn is posting their billions of dollars of revenue that they are. It wouldn't make sense in my mind. So that's my thoughts on it. Maybe this is how things really are, but in my opinion, it's probably not an accurate representation of the amount of time actually spent working. Now that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoy your weekend. And if you want to chat on a Discord, if you want to get access to Qualtrum Insight, there is the Patreon link in the description below. Like I said, there's a free trial. You have no risk. And you can try it out risk-free right now with the free trial.